coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen. The slow death of ATV, seminars at this year's Hong Kong International Film Festival, and other Hong Kong cinema bites the dust. I offer some responses to my recent Netflix article, and we talk about Stephen Chow's The Mermaid. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, and coming to you from his news desk under the sea is Mr. Kevin Ma. Under the sea! Hey, Paul. <laughs> how you doing, sir? I, I, I don't even know how the song goes. I just know that line. Under the sea! Yeah, you gotta, you gotta get sort of a xylophone thing going, you know, do 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 something like that. Yeah. <laughs> we gotta do our, our Little Mermaid duet. Um, yes, we should have done this. You should have done this. Sorry. Oh, uh, well. Uh, we wasted can... opportunity. Yeah, as yes, always. indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes. So, how's everything going, sir? Things are well. Um, very busy. Uh, just after the, you know, picking things up after the the long New Year holiday. I mean, yes. how, how about you? Crazy, crazy busy. It's a starting new semester, right? New semester. Teaching four classes. They gave me a four class load this time. Jeez. So yeah, it's a, a heavy, heavy semester for me, and uh, you know, just, just lots and lots of work. You know, falling behind with everything, with movie watching, with writing reports and grading papers and everything. So. Yeah, I'm, you know, <laughs> there's a lot just going give, on. That's why this... everybody B yeah. minuses, C pluses. Yeah, I wish. That's the key. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's why <laughs> this uh, particular episode is actually uh, a couple of days later than I wanted to record it, just because everything's kind of been piling up. But uh, here we are to talk about more movies and more movie news. And so I hope that everybody out there listening had a uh, joyous and happy Chinese New Year. We're still kind of technically in the Chinese New Year period, right? Because we go to like 14 or 15 days out from the first day of the holiday. But the actual like days off holidays are, are past us. I, I am like, it, it's already it seems so far behind actually. And I realize it's already been nearly two weeks since that, that New Year vacation started. I'm like, my God, time has moved too slowly or yes. too quickly rather really. Yeah, and, and for, for some things it's like, you have a vacation and it's almost not even a vacation because you f end up falling behind with work projects or things that need to get done. So when you get back, you're like doubly busy to try and catch up on stuff sometimes. So what the problem is when well, on, on the side of my work is that because we're a monthly magazine, so we have a very steady monthly cycle. And this month or this year or February means that what do we have 28 days or 29 days this year. 29 this year we are in a leap year so, so but we are missing we lose like a day right at least already and plus the the uh the new year holiday means we lose like five days of work 
uh, practically four or five days of work. So so it it kind of you know makes everything go faster. It's just even one day less of work is because it's a short month. So no, uh, yeah, things are you know just go just keep on trucking, right? Yeah, indeed. Well, let's uh, move on from talking about uh, the working day and talk about the movie day. So we'll throw it back over to Kevin at the news desk with his news. Here at the news desk, um, you know, you know, the TV, the Hong Kong TV industry is, is so you know close or is so important in the film industry that you know when when something big happens in the TV industry, we really can't avoid talking about it because there there is so much you know it could quite affect the entertainment industry. And what we have here is the slow death of a television station, Asia Television, or what you might know before as Red Diffusion. Television's been around in Hong Kong for easily 50 years or so, quite frankly, on the verge of death. Last year, uh, the government decided not to renew its broadcasting license, telling the, the television station that they have to stop broadcast or they lose their right to broadcast on April 1st. They, they, the, the station has run into a whole series of financial trouble since, including you know, failure to, pl- to pay wages on time. Just before the new year, it was so behind on payments that it essentially told the entire news department to just leave, just essentially just take a, a, a hiatus and, and not come back. So, so it's been, it's, everyone's kind of expecting it. it. Right now, there's not much staff remaining at the station. The canteen is closed already, but it's still, you know, the, uh, the technical staff, the transmission, the people at the transmission side, they're still getting paid because they're the people who keep the station running and it's pretty much on autopilot at the moment. But the um, owners already seek the injunction, you know, declaring bankruptcy for the station the the workers who have not been paid are 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 also you know seeking emergency emergency injunction to close the station down bankrupt or declare the station bankrupt essentially to get see if they can you know get any of their wages back retroactively as well or you know after the fact or whatever but the problem is even if ATV closes down, we are expecting a new television station, uh, View TV from PCCW, to start in early April, I believe. So, so you know, with this kind of death of this old television station, you know, which brought us people like Chairman Toh, Bao Hei Jing, you know, it's done dramas by Wong Jing, it's, it's, you know, been home to many Hong Kong stars, this dying, and then in this gap be- be- before the new station comes, TVB will truly have a monopoly, and it's this sort of TVB monopoly that you know many this generation has sort of blamed for the the sort of stagnation of quality in Hong Kong entertainment. Of course, we don't know if you know. Let's face it; I mean, ATV hasn't been producing quality shows for years, and we don't know if UTV will will produce anything that's of quality yet. Um, as far View TV is already have an app. Uh, they were have an app up, and it's mainly, well, entirely shows brought from abroad. Lots of Korean dramas, Japanese shows. Essentially, what they have right now, it's all based on foreign broad programming, although they're very making a very aggressive buy. Um, and, of course, this will go back to our whole Netflix argument, but I don't want to go back to that yet. But anyway, they are making, you know, big buys of foreign programming, um, mainly many Asian programming, and uh, so we don't know how much local content they will be producing or how much fuel they'll be putting in to the entertainment industry, the Hong Kong entertainment industry, to sort of keep it going. So this sort of unfolding situation uh, is a very interesting time right now in the Hong Kong television industry, uh, something to, to, to watch out for. I don't know. I think interesting is a bit of an overstatement. 
Um, we've had. I think. I think we are at a time of change, and I think. But are we? I mean, we we had the whole um, Hong Kong TV, you know, kerfuffle the past year years or so, I should say, you know, because it's been ongoing, and ultimately, what happened with them? They gave us their own sort of TV app streaming service, and they have some interesting programming, but most of what they they end up doing now is like uh, basically an online shopping portal. The online shopping portal because they, they ran out of money to produce more content. They were banking on getting a license and then, you know, they, they can sell ads and they can do free-to-air and then, you know, they can produce more shows. They don't have the kind of money that PCCW has for View TV. I mean, View TV already, you know, it's an, essentially the, the free version of Now TV, the IPTV uh, broadcasters. Uh, they've had... They've built, you know, free original co- channels of content before this already. Of course, they already killed one of those channels because they anticipate they'll have to produce that content for the free channel. But it, it kind of tells me that you don't have to work for TVB. You know, TVB did produce a lot of great talent for the Hong Kong film industry, and so did ATV. And actually, ATV did play a major part. So, so I'm hoping that this kind of tradition would carry on. That View TV will attract new talent but hong kong television is such a stagnation because people are so used to watching tvb that they're refusing to change the channel traditional audiences didn't give hong kong tv a chance because the whole video on demand thing um didn't work and when they try to do the traditional you know air to audience thing they did it via uh, uh tv apps and live live streaming rather than you know because they don't have the license to broadcast over the air you know it didn't work out the shows were only okay and but then they weren't they didn't have the resource to sort of keep developing what they started so you know i think hong kong television industry really needs a change truly truly needs a change uh at wasn't going to bring it because atv was you know trapped in you know whatever I don't want to bring politics into it, but they were trapped in, you know, with the with you know the money where the money was coming from, not to say. But you know, yeah, I'm just when I think of Hong Kong television, I sort of have given up for them for years, and and I you know I just want an excuse to go back to watching television. But of course, it all goes back to you know what Paul you want to say about how you know the death of traditional television is coming, and everyone's going to be you know video on demand. But I think before we go to that. Hong Kong has to start producing television that people would want to watch on demand to begin with. And yes. I don't think it has well, produced anything. I think that's one part of the equation. But the other part of the equation that I learned from the Hong Kong TV experience was you have to make an app that works <laughs> and, and is reliable. Because I tried to watch what the, the, the big one, what is it called? The election? The election, yeah. Um, multiple times. And the app continuously crashed on me. And I just I, I ended up giving up. All right, uh, next, the Hong Kong International Film Festival starts on March 24th. And uh, today they began registration. Today is, can we say today? Today's February 19th when we're recording this. The Hong Kong International Film Festival began registration for this year's major seminars. One of them, uh, this year's retrospective, is the 25th anniversary of Jetong Films, just one Kar-wai's company. So, the film festival is holding a seminar with director Wong Kar Wai on March 25th, hosted by director Philip Yong, who directed Port of Call. So in case you're coming to Hong Kong for festival time, you're listening to this, the the, the, the seminar will be held on March 25th at 2.30 in the afternoon. It is only in Cantonese, 
there will be no uh, uh, simultaneous translation as far as I know. Although, I guess if you find me, I might do it for you. Um, I might bring in a recorder and try and you know get the whole thing written up or something like that. But anyway, if, if you want to uh, register, you can register on... Um, hkiff.org.hk it will lead you to the event bright page where you can get yourself a ticket the other seminar this year uh is a celebration i guess uh 40 it's a last about the last 40 years of hong kong cinema because this year is hkiff's 40th anniversary so they are bringing in director stanley kwan director pang ho chen and adam wong to you know the three of them will sit down at this uh, city hall the City Hall Theater on March 28th, again at 2.30 in the afternoon, to talk about 40 years, the last 40 years of Hong Kong cinema. The seminar will be hosted by uh, festi- the festival's programmer, Lee Chuck To. Uh, again, the registration is available at hkiff.org.hk. Again, it will be an event bright page where you can get a ticket. The lineup for this year's festival is being announced on the 24th, February 24th. Tickets go on sale on February 25th. And if I may make a, a correction right now, the festival starts on March 21st, Monday, March 21st. So uh, that's a week after Film Mart, in case you know some of you industry people will be coming to Hong Kong. Uh, this year's Film Mart starts actually a week early. It doesn't coincide with the festival. All right, what is next? The third, we were talking, you know, recently about the new cinemas opening in Hong Kong. Um, and, you know, I think I'm going to try and hit the latest one, which is the Latte Cinema down in Shao Kewan tomorrow or in the next couple of days. But until then, another Hong Kong cinema is bite the dots. This is the uh, Golden Harvest Golden Gateway uh, out there in Jim Sa Trey. If you know your Jim Sa Trey um, geography, down Canton Road, there's the sort of a main road uh, sort of near the harbor that leads down to Star Ferry. There are two theaters, both Golden Harvest cinemas. One is the Grand Ocean, which is the huge, the only single screen theater left in Hong Kong, I believe. It has four or 500 seats, recently remodeled, bigger seats, D-Box and everything. That's sort of quite close to the Star Ferry. And then up the road by about half a mile or so, you have a Golden Gateway, which is, uh, yes, four screens. And you may remember it. As the cinema that was featured in Infernal Affairs, this one where Tony Leung uh, tails Andy Lau and then go into the back alleyway and uh, and then and, and there was this kind of a dramatic moment. That would be the Golden Gateway Cinema. It's been around for twenty years, and fortunately, the lease um, went up, and I think the mall is going to take it back, and they will not be replacing it with another cinema. Now you may say, oh, you know, that's sad, it's another cinema gone. And I will tell you, I've had my memories in that cinema. I watched Roddy Yip's Lavender there, where you know it was one of the few theaters in Hong Kong that had the smell vision, and I, that's where I watched Lavender. So, you know, I've been to that cinema quite a few times. But I would tell you, good riddance. <laughs> Seriously. I hated that theater, dude. I hated that theater. It's flat, the screen is small. You know, you know, you, you, there's some, suddenly there's like it's, it, the first few rows, like first seven rows, and suddenly there's stairs that goes up to a second level, very like one step up, and that's what they call sta- stadium seating. And I freaking hated that theater, man. I remember watching uh, "I Love You, New York" there, and the screen was right next to the to the um, roadway that goes into the parking lot. I could hear the cars like honking. You know, I really didn't like that theater. So you know, Hong Kong needs quality theaters. We, we need to get rid of these sort of crappy, you know, 
multi I mean, we're in the multiplex age and multiplex was supposed to bring a sort of more premium experience you know to film goers and yet you know we got crappy cinemas like this and i'm sorry it shouldn't have been gone a long time ago this it's because the local bollywood film started showing at golden gateway and i realized i am not paying 180 hong kong dollars to go watch a bollywood film in a crappy cinema like that and that's what made me stop going to bollywood screenings so so sorry golden gateway Unfortunately, it won't be replaced by a better theater, but you were supposed to go anyway. I've been there a couple times. It's not. It was not a, a good theater, and it, the the biggest problem with it was it wasn't easy to get to. Yeah, I mean, as like you said, it was what like a mile or three quarters of a mile away from the Grand Ocean, mm-hmm. but basically, it's the entire length of this huge mall. <laughs> That you know that you walk from one end of the mall to this to the other end, and then at the end there was the sort of the cinema down on the on the ground level, and it's it was not next to any convenient bus stops. It was not next to any terminal exits or anything. It just wasn't a fun theater to get to. I mean, and it was pretty close to the old Silver Cord, right? It wasn't that far away, and actually the Silver Cord was actually easier to get to than that, and that was also not a super easy cinema to get to. Those who've probably seen remember seeing films at the older hong kong international film festivals they had screenings a lot of times i think they had some midnight screenings at the silver cord you can remember you know hiking out to that to that cinema were you in hong kong when actually there were two cinemas across from the silver cord it was kind of in that you know there's this little road that goes into harbor city um you know you you have to have a little entry before you actually enter harbor city where you go under the bridge. Um, right now, there are actually multiple entries like that at along Harbor City, where you yeah. have to do a short walkway. Yeah. Actually, along one of those walkways, you had like a two-screen cinema on the left before you get into the... You couldn't get into the mall back in the days from there. And and at the end of the walkway, I think there were these two... This two-screen theater. That's where I watched old Ghibli movies. Hmm. Uh, right near the Silver Court. So... Yeah, so but unfortunately, I guess that those cinemas closed, and then they then they built the the Golden Gateway up the road. Yeah, we should if we were to start a uh, Hong Kong cinema Deadpool with regard <laughs> to the actual cinemas. What would be next on your list? I'm surprised that the Grand Ocean is still around and kicking. To be honest, well, it's because they remodeled, and it's kind of like the the optimal. It, it makes a lot of money holding premieres, and and you know for big films, it does sell out. Um, not sell out completely, but it you know gets a pretty good emission for big films. That's why you always see the big Hollywood films there. They've got a nice atmosphere system going there now. I watched Star Wars at Grand Ocean. You know, people people who want to watch big Hollywood movies gonna go to the Grand Ocean, right? Unfortunately, there are two more cinemas. They are going away. Uh, local blogger Ryan reported that I don't even know what the English name of it is, but the theater in Tongchong, uh, near the airport. Is, is on its way out because the mall is also, you know, once again, they're remodeling and they don't plan to replace the cinema, the UA cinema out there. Uh, the the UA um, IMAX cinema that's at the airport out in Terminal 2 actually is also on its way out, but not in a very near future. But the airport authority is planning to, I think they're planning to either rebuild or they're planning to take down Terminal 2 because, you know, Terminal 2 where there are no planes. Or is it only yeah. for check-in, <laughs> uh, which is essentially the mall. But apparently that building will be going away or rebuilt and the cinema um, uh, will either be gone or it won't, it won't stick around or they won't rebuild it. So there are two more cinemas going away, one sooner than the other. 
so at least those two are pretty high up on the Deadpool of Hong Kong cinema. Mm. Well, I guess we'll have to hope for newer and better cinemas in the future. Well, are we? Are, we, are you? Are you putting how how high sh- you a shot in on your list? Oh man, that's it's definitely one or two. I, I you know <laughs> it's definitely up there. I'm surprised it's it's lasted out this long. And it, you know, for if people are holding out hope that UA at the uh, airport is going to rebuild. Well, that's what they told me about Shatin years ago. They said, yeah, we're <laughs> gonna, and it still hasn't happened. They're still stuck in these two tiny houses down in a basement. So, Well, it depends on what the airport authority plans to do about you know, the useless Terminal 2 plan. I mean, they, they have, they're so worried about this, this um, um, whatchamacallit, the third runway that, you know, they don't even quite know. I don't think they even knew what they were doing when they built this second terminal, but Anyway, that's you know I'm think it is it is the biggest it is actually the biggest IMAX cinema in Hong Kong at the moment. So I guess I shouldn't you know complain about that cinema. But you know the whole Terminal Two should have been you know shouldn't have been built to begin with. But anyway, I hope that more cinemas will be, be will be built in Hong Kong. Um, and I will probably come back next week to report on uh, the Latte Cinema down down here out on the island. Um, and and talk about how that that new theater is. All right, that sounds good. Well, not really news, but but final bit. Kind of want to talk about the the recently the Netflix article that I wrote um, on Love HK Film. I I wrote that um, with a click. I'm sorry, it's a clickbait headline, but I wrote that Netflix uh, can save uh, Hong Kong cinema. What I argue is that Netflix needs to have a stronger so regional operation, and when they do that, they can take advantage of Hong Kong cinema's established infrastructure. Um, and actually produce local productions at a fraction of what they're paying right now for indie films in, in, in the U.S. Or actually a fraction of what they're investing in, say, Korea or, um, you know, for television say, uh, series. Or they recently committed 50 million U.S. dollars to pay for a, a production uh, in South Korea. And I say you can spend six millions, five, six million and produce a, a perfectly fine film here in Hong Kong, a good mid-budget, you know, made for kind of uh, mature sort of not not like a kid, not like a Patrick Kong movie, but something that you know that's a good mid-budget drama, you know, that that appeals to an adult audience. And in that sense, you can actually save Hong Kong filmmakers from having to appease the China market. It gives them a, a, a an alternative. It it gives them uh, a chance to not have to make co-productions to make the films they want to make to tell the stories they want to tell. And of course, there you know there are a bit of feedback on on the in the comment section on the uh, Love HK Film Facebook group. But first of all, I mean, Paul, um, you you read the article, I assume. Yes. Yeah. What 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 do you think about it? I mean, what do you think about the ideas that I that I put forward? No, I you know I I agree with uh, a lot of what you say. I don't. I don't see Netflix as a <clears throat> a savior of an industry. What I do think that it has the power to do is allow content creators, you know, different outlets when they don't have access to the sort of traditional industry. So in some ways, it kind of gets back to this uh, this debate about uh, sort of the old media, new media, which has been in the news because of Wang Jing and and some of the other debates going on. We don't need to get into that. But I, I think that the you know there's there's definitely potential there to I want I want to say launch the careers of, of of young aspiring filmmakers, but definitely give them a platform to to try and find success if they have the talent. Right. Actually, I 
seeing the uh, news today about Amazon's approach, I actually sort of agree with more of Amazon's approach because I know that filmmakers, um, young filmmakers, still want their films to go out to cinemas. So what I think I sort of want to change the point a little bit. I think what Netflix can do is offer a theatrical, a local theatrical release at least uh, here in Hong Kong. Give you know, give these films chance at the festival circuit, but then they take global distribution rights. This is actually very important because a lot of these Chinese films actually now already have day and day release uh, in the states, in in the UK, you know, in many places, you know, in Western speaking Western countries or you know Australia. So why not? You know, Netflix can take the global rights. It automatically gives these Hong Kong films an international audience without having to worry about you know going to film, spending money to go to the film market and trying to sell the rights and then and not knowing how these distributors are going to handle the films. Netflix, it's a it's a one stop shop. Netflix, of course, has to properly um, promote the films, but you know at least it gives you know a, a global a worldwide platform. We're talking about worldwide, even if just. One percent of Netflix subscribers watch the film that you made in Hong Kong. I mean, that's already more, way more than people than you would get to watch your film in Hong Kong. I think, and it would be a very good calling card. Now, what I think I should also add that, like you said, Paul, I mean, I don't think Netflix is a savior, uh, so savior. What I'm hoping is that Netflix will sort of drive or push, motivate. Competition, so that more platforms will adapt this sort of strategy. So let's say Amazon may want to want to expand to Asia. Um, they already have Amazon Japan. Maybe they want to make you know expand their video operation to to across the globe. View TV, who we just talked about, want to try this for you know for Hong Kong distribution. I don't know, but you know I think that once Netflix sort of pushed that and it showed that this could happen, I think this would motivate more you know. Content owners, content distributors, to think that we don't always have to think about the China market. That there is, a, there are other options. Just like back then, there was Southeast Asia and Taiwan and Hong Kong, and you know the states, and you know um, that there are other options. And I think that's pretty much all we need to sort of keep the hope in the industry going. And uh, you know, a lot of the comments they they're really talking about what old Hong Kong films these video services are carrying, you know, what kind of films they have. Amazon Prime, for example, carrying a lot of Hong Kong films. Um, um, let's see. Uh, I see more people talk about, you know, Shaw Brothers. They want Shaw Brothers to have the films. But the thing is, we're, we're not talking about what Netflix have or what content Netflix has. And we're not talking about what Amazon has. We're sort of I'm sort of at least pushing a grander, a bigger idea. I want Netflix to produce new content. I don't care about old content anymore. It's great that there's old content, more available, more audiences, but it's not going to drive, you know, mass subscriptions the way that new content will attract subscribers. So I don't want to discuss about what Netflix or Amazon should have in terms of old content. Um, one comment also said that, you know, uh, um, it will help China. Netflix will help China more than it helps Hong Kong. Actually, that doesn't make sense because China, or this is why actually I think Netflix is not able to get into China, not because China won't let them, but I think it's because they can't solve the problem of how they will differentiate themselves in the crowded market that is China. China already has 
a very very crowded video market. It has La TV, it has Yuku Tudo, it has Aichi, Alibaba Party also working on their own video platform. Every major media corporation has a video platform, and the fact that Netflix will probably have to censor their shows, they have to spend all this money to 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 censor the shows to Chinese Chinese censors. Why not just sell the rights to these video platforms instead of trying to you know spend all this money to to make it into China? It just Financially, it doesn't make any sense to them. So Netflix is not going to help China. Oh, well, Netflix needs China, but China doesn't need Netflix. So that that's pretty much my response to that argument. Another one, hopefully, is the old guard filmmakers who look down on straight to Netflix distribution, while young filmmakers would try to take advantage of this. I agree. This is a platform for younger filmmakers. Although it may need old filmmakers, established filmmakers, to sort of make it appeal to audiences. Let's say like. Uh, Chu makes a film for Netflix. It will attract, say, people. Oh, you know, oh my God, Chu made a film for Netflix. Maybe I'll subscribe. Or if uh, uh, Wilson Yip or something, or Joe Ma, or if I may add, you know, if I may be ambitious, Trey Hark or something makes a film for Netflix, and people will go like, oh wow, you know, maybe I should subscribe and check it out. Um, I think that will sort of help open the gate for people to go check this out. So yeah, that's that's. All I have to say for net with Netflix for now, hopefully at least for a while. I, I would just follow up with a short response about the old content because sure. I'm an old timer. So <laughs> especially right now, I'm talking like an old timer because my voice is is uh, going out. I do apologize. I think for me, there's there's a potential power in something like Netflix to come and not save Hong Kong cinema, but save old Hong Kong cinema. You know and because there's so many titles out there. Just look at the the recent Joy Sales uh, legendary collection release that was you know going on in the last decade or so. Most of those titles are gone now. If you want to find any of them, your best bet, your best bet is to look on YouTube for an illegally uploaded full version copy. And a lot of them will be there. And, you know, YouTube doesn't care because I guess nobody's pressing copyright issue with it but the they're terrible quality I mean they're 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 not uploaded at good resolution a lot of them maybe not uh, uploaded from VCD variants but just not definitely not DVD quality that's being pushed up there and I think that a Netflix could come in and build a backlog library if they would buy up some of these collections and and try and get a hold of, of old titles. And yeah, that's not going to bring, you know, a lot of new people on board, but it's going to bring some people who are looking for some of the older stuff who want to be able to pour through the old movies of the 80s and the 90s that you just can't find anymore. Or if you can, you're going to have to pay several hundred bucks for a laser disc that you don't even have a, a laser disc player anymore. And maybe my big hope was that it wouldn't be Netflix doing this. Like I said, I don't think there's anything indicative that it has to be Netflix. I kind of always wished that the the Hong Kong Film Archive would, you know, push a grant through to the government or something, and they would start to do something like this. You know, they they push um, some kind of online platform that people could pay for, subscribe to, and then they just get access to all this stuff and be able to stream it in in a similar kind of month to month subscription model or something. I mean, they should. They, they, that's that's the job of preservation, not just to keep a library that is way the heck out on East Island, and you've got to travel hours to get there unless unless you live there. 
and then you've got to kind of like you know check and see do they have a title and then you got to go there and sit down just like the old library days when you have to like sit at a cubicle um to watch something right dude i hate to say it. i i love the hong kong film archive and all and and i do work for them but but when you hand anything to the government, there's always going to be some way that they they screw it up. Um, no, I I think that that you're right that that someone could buy up all these rights and you know essentially preserve these Hong Kong cinema, um, Hong Kong films. But unfortunately, as I've always said, I've always said that Netflix is not as powerful as you think. Netflix is only as good as what the content owners are willing to give away. And I think. That current, I think if you look at go back to the content owner and goes, Hey, can we buy global rights for this film? They'll go, like We don't even know who owns this film yeah, here that, at the moment. That's the problem, right? Nobody, <laughs> that is a problem, right? It's like some of these smaller films, they were even, so much... even, even with headliners, you know, it's like small Andy Lau films in the 80s and early 90s and stuff. He made so many that some of them just fell through the cracks, and it's like nobody, nobody knows who owns these anymore, and they're just up on YouTube, and nobody can do anything about it because it's just gone the paperwork's gone some some warehouse burned down and you know it's just a mystery now the problem with 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 hong kong cinema back in the 80s it was such a cash in industry and there was such a cashing in mentality and i'm not saying that this cash in mentality has even gone away i mean Wong jing has made an entire career of cash in mentality films right it, it's such a cash in mentality everywhere in this industry in china and in you know asia that that there was no foresight in terms of, hey, if I hold on to these rights or if I were a little more careful about selling my rights, you know, people can enjoy these films for years to come. But no, it was for them. It was like, oh, I'm going to make this big batch of money now. You guys can take the film. Do whatever you want with it. Just give me the money now. And that's, you know, quick, get get quick rich. No, get quick rich quick. That's what it was in, in, in Hong Kong film industry. And, and it was that kind of mindset that sort of killed the future of preserving hong kong cinema unfortunately and i think that's one of the frustrations of the film archive is that they of course they want to get their hands of on as many hong kong films as possible that's what they're here for and you know they want to screen as many hong kong films as possible they want to make as many hong kong films available as possible the problem is they can't convince the content owner or they can't clear the legal red tape that surrounds these catalogs so you know but of course, you know, criticizing the past is not going to help the Hong Kong film industry, unfortunately. So let, let's look to the future and see what we can do to help this industry, to see what can be done and see if there are options for the future. All right. Why don't we take a short break and we'll come back to talk about our film this week, Stephen Chow's The Mermaid. And we're back. Our film, The Mermaid, from director Stephen Chow, who we last heard from a couple years ago with his take on uh, Journey to the West, Conquering Demons. He's back this time to tell a simple story, a story of a business tycoon named Liu Xuan, played by Deng Chow, who purchases a wildlife reserve as part of a sea reclamation 
project, which are, you know, these projects that are very popular today where you, you buy some ocean space and then you fill it up with land and build whatever on it, right? The reserve happens to be the refuge of the Mer people who have been driven to harboring in sort of an abandoned transport ship as the result of a super sea sonar that's being used to clear the area of sea life. And this sea sonar actually is so effective that it actually damages and harms sea life. So in a plan to assassinate Liu Xuan, the Mer people send Shan, uh, played by newcomer Lin Yuan, to set up the classic honey trap scenario where she will charm him and seduce him and then kill him. But when her attempts comedically fail, Liu Xuan becomes intrigued by this rather naive girl and he slowly starts to fall for her. So the last film to deal with this concept sort of of the mythic mermaid was the Ikan Cheng classic Mermaid Got Married back in 1994. So we haven't had a Hong Kong mermaid film since then. And if you've never had a chance to see that film, definitely try and dig it up because uh, it's got some fun, fun moments in it, I'll say that. Kenishiro Takeshi is also in it and uh, Christy Chung is the mermaid, if, if memory serves. So yeah, we haven't had a film dealing with the subject of mermaids for a long time. Stephen Chow here is interesting in that he kind of is going for an environmental twist as well. We actually get some footage that looks like it's taken from the very famous sort of uh, dolphin slayings um, from movies like The Cove, if you're familiar with that documentary. Part of me kind of wondered if there was a slight attempt at anti-Japanese sentiment in this. Maybe I'm reading a bit too much too much into that, but um, that is sort of a very hot-button environmental issue. They do show footage of, you know, factories and things. Nothing directly speaking to China and China's environmental problems per se. Nothing kind of pointing the finger back inwards, but sort of just more sort of a quick montage of just, you know, the whole international issue. The newcomer on the scene, as I mentioned, Lin Yun, I guess her stage name is Jelly. At least that's how, how they list it online. Pretty new on the scene. A new discovery, much like uh, Kitty Zhang was back in CJ7 uh, a few years back, who is also in this film. She has a, I'll talk a little bit more about Kitty Zhang in just a moment. She, the this newcomer, Lin Yun, to me, I'll see, interesting to see what Kevin says on this. She's very reminiscent of a very young Xu Qi uh, in some of the shots of her. I mean, I was getting this really strong sort of Xu Qi vibe from when Xu Qi was like really, really young. And it's, you know, I'm, part of me is wondering too if that's an intention by Stephen Chow. Does he like that type because he used her Xu Qi that is in his uh, last film, Conquering Demons. It'll be interesting to see how she develops out of this if she can get a good career out of it. I mean, Kitty Zhang had an okay career, but she wasn't like a breakout superstar, we would say. Um, it'd be interesting to see where Lin Yun goes from here. So this is a simple story. It's a, it's, it plays with a lot of simple ideas, boy meets girl stuff. It touches on some aspects of sort of the mermaid myth, romance, human mermaid kind of ideas as well. So we joked a little bit about Little Mermaid earlier. One of the things I said early on was, I hope he's not just going to copy Splash. 
and he didn't. This isn't Splash at all, which is good. He does do some twists in a couple places that I don't really want to spoil, but uh, some, some things that he does to sort of go for humor early on, and then it sort of comes back in the end, I will say. But there are a lot of common tropes uh, in terms of the, the kinds of beats he's going for uh, with humor. One of my local friends, in fact, a local Hong Konger, after I saw it and my wife saw it during Chinese New Year, and we both really liked it. We said, oh, you've you got to go see it. It's, it's a really good Stephen Chow film. He went and saw it. He's like, why did you say that was good? That was just the same old stuff, you know, the, that he's done these kind of gags before. And that's true. He has done these kind of gags before. But for me, it was the combination of doing it within the context of sort of this fantasy slash they they listed on wikipedia as a sci-fi slash fantasy because of the the i guess these super high-tech sonar tech they're using but that's really a small part of it. it's it's really just a fantasy you know mermaid film but i think that they didn't really go far enough with some of the humor i mean they spent a lot of time on sort of the boy meets girl story once it gets into the middle before they get uh, to the end and I thought there was just a lot of room for tropes or, or to go beyond the tropes that they did play with. And they could have gone into some, you know, really interesting areas. You know, one question popped into my mind because you have all these mer people living together. It's like, where do mer people go to the bathroom? Right? I mean, they're just all in the same water. Are they just going in the water together? It's just one of those things that popped in my mind. And I'm thinking, this is something that Steve, old Stephen Chow might have really had fun with, right? Like, or earlier 90s or mid-90s Stephen Chow, um, whereas here he's just kind of going for the normal romantic beats at times. But then he does what most of his more recent films do. He goes really dark at times. There's a there's a scene with one of the characters and a sort of teppanyaki-style grill that's kind of gross and kind of gruesome and funny at the same time. It's like <laughs> all sort of... It's all wrapped up. You don't know if you're supposed to be laughing or be <laughs> horrified. And this is where the really the real genius, I think, of of some of the humor in this film comes from. Because you've you have you have not seen a film do some of these things before. So well, yes, some of it is is, you know, tried and true, we'll say. Is some of it is is brand new, and that's one of the things I really enjoyed about it. But I think of people will be deceived by Again, the simple boy meets girl kind of story that is at the at the heart of the storytelling. But yeah, it does go dark, especially towards the end. It, you know, like his films, going back to like King of Comedy and uh, Shaolin Soccer to some extent, Kung Fu Hustle. There's darkness here, and he's not afraid to to show that sometimes. But then he pulls it back, and you know, you get some comedic beats and as it sort of goes back and builds to a, a, what I'd consider a somewhat traditional ending. Another thing that kind of surprised me was Deng Chao as uh, sort of the leading man here. He can actually do comedy really well. You look at his filmography. I mean, I, mean, I know he's been in stuff like Fit Lover and, and, and some stuff that we could laugh at. But here I think that in terms of his timing and his ability to emote and evoke comedic response from the audience... He did a really good job, and I'd like to see him do more comedy. Well, well, both films he directed are actually comedies. He did uh, he co-directed Breakup Guru with Minnie Yang. Mm-hmm. Um, I only saw watched about thirty minutes of it because it was too. Because his actually his brand of comedy as a filmmaker is very much the really manic, 
like uh, like um in your face loud you know fast kind of comedy very bombastic sort of comedy which actually fits his role here doing that kind of that bombastic over-the-top Stephen Chow thing fortunately as a filmmaker he doesn't quite it off so you were saying that you hope that he would do comedy but unfortunately i think if you've seen the breakup guru you kind of you might want to go back on well your maybe <laughs> he doesn't maybe he doesn't need to direct himself maybe he needs yeah you know somebody to direct him oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, we also have uh show low here as brother eight who is the odd man out i guess because whereas everybody is a mer person you know that is a the uh half man half fish he is the octo man he's half man half octopus <laughs> and that, there's no explanation as to why he's the variant um, <laughs> but but he, he is and he's great he's super funny uh, again too really pulling off comedy quite well and, and for the role that he's doing and, and again i think between him and the the newcomer lin yan and deng chow really the it's the three of them uh, carrying most of the scenes in the film uh kitty zhang here plays a, a business associate of Deng Chao's character. And she's good. She looks good. But uh, she's not really given a lot to do until much later in the film. A lot of it, it she's just kind of wearing low-cut dresses and she's trying to come on as uh, Deng Chao's girlfriend. And she plays sort of the third wheel as Deng Chao starts to get more and more interest in Lin Yuan's character. There's a couple of familiar faces too. We've got uh, Tin Kaiman, Tengi Tin, uh, and also uh, Lam Chi Chong from all the way back from Silent Shocker, um, doing some cameos. Zoe Hark shows up in a kind of just weird role uh, as this guy. He's like amongst a bunch of rich guys who are associates with Deng Chao's character. And Adam Chang is listed, but he doesn't have a direct cameo per se. He's kind of referenced. And, and his music is, is somewhat referenced, and there's sort of a, a, a running gag with, with regard to that that I won't spoil here. Well, he um, also sings a cover of the song featured in the film with, uh, he covers himself uh, with, with Karen Mock. Yes, yes. Yeah, which is used as a promotional video here in Hong Kong. So for the most part, I would say it feels like Stephen Chow. He's still playing with context like he's done in a lot of his more recent films. Last film he was playing with, of course, The Monkey King Story, um, Shaolin Soccer. He's playing with Kung Fu and Sports, Kung Fu Hustle, taking that further. You know, CJ7, he's playing with the sort of whole Doraemon cartoon kind of ideas. So he's still playing with a lot of context from existing pop culture. But he's also um, going for some new gags here. So I think if you like that, that uh, you'll really enjoy this film. I really enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. I have been dying to get out and see it again. I just haven't had time. So let me throw the ball over to Kevin so you can all stop hearing my raspy voice. And uh, <laughs> let's hear his thoughts on it. Well, I, I don't want to add too much to it. But no, I, I, I think I've, I've seen it twice already, by the way. Um, great fun. Really tons of fun. The, the beauty of this film, especially when you watch from Vegas to Macau, Korea, the same you know period, you kind of had this comparison. You'd have two filmmakers who are very much bringing their shtick from the 90s or back you know the old days over to you know to modern audiences. But why is one so much more you know 
successful than the other because you know I mean a lot of the old gags you know Stephen Chow sort of brings back you know especially there's you know the sequence where one person tries to harm another but ends up hurting himself a lot that you know that that sort of it's a very you know classical Stephen Chow thing that he's used in uh, Kung Fu Hustle and and of course other you know Wong Jing's used it a lot already but the beauty of it is he makes it work in the plot and and he he doesn't slack on the comic timing Wong Jing brings in you know just mentions old old scenes and and old things just in the name of nostalgia and he can't stop reminding audiences that it's been done way better before and he's just sort of trying to induce nostalgia but Stephen Chow trying to actually trying to serve it as a new thing with you know comic with his own sort of comic timing he doesn't slack he's not being lazy here he's doing the same thing but he's still trying to make you laugh and he's still trying to make it funny um, and I think that's really the difference. Why Stephen Chow is recycling his own style and is still very funny. That's you know because he still tries. He's trying. What I love about the the, the show law you're talking about show law as you know the octopus. What I love is that actually Stephen Chow is a man of the audience. He knows that <laughs> the audience loves to see the handsome guy get really really get it the worst out of everyone. <laughs> He really is like the butt of a lot of jokes. He comes off like the worst. And actually, I and and you know Maggie, my friend Maggie, my friend Maggie Lee of uh, Variety, you know she used the term. It's an ecological version of less caution. Um, you can actually equate, you know, so so the evil so Deng Chao is actually Tony Leung, and and uh, Lin Yuan is actually you know uh, Tom Wei, and Octopus Man is Li Hong Wei. <laughs> He's, you know, he even has a scene where he's like, oh, you know, let's practice kissing. Because <laughs> he wants to know how to kiss, right? <laughs> even have that scene. And even have the scene where Lin Yuan goes, get out, leave, to the to Chao character. All the beats are here. Um, so, so I kind of found that, you know, it's almost like it's intentionally doing that. Just to sort of ridicule that that whole story formula. Um, and uh, no, I, I, I just... You know, I had a really great time, and yes, it does get cruel as you know Stephen Chow films go. It does get rather dark, but you know, I, I think friend of the show Ross Chan says it uh, after our screening. He says Stephen Chow, you know, makes you earn it. You know, he makes you, he really makes you go through the motions before getting to a, a happy ending, so to speak. He really makes you go through the most. He wants you to go to the darkest place before he brings you back up, and he really knows how to, you know, earn play with your emotions in that in that way. And he does it in really the cruelest of ways, but he does it with some kind of goal, I think. So yeah, no, it's a it's a great time, and apparently it's been, it's going to be opening uh, several, you know, in the UK, uh, I think in the US, maybe Australia and Canada. It's very soon, very soon, if not this week. So yeah, no, check it out and check out a big audience. It's I think it's a great time. And by the way, um, I remember watching the teaser in Mandarin, and I watched it in Cantonese. And I think unlike uh, Journey to the West, I think this one you really have to watch it in Cantonese because it, you just feel from the Cantonese dialogue. I know people complain that oh, why doesn't Stephen Chow make movies in Cantonese anymore? Well, this one you can definitely hear that he wrote or his team of nine writers or eight writers, including plus himself. Uh, wrote all these ca- dialogue in Cantonese and Stephen Chow I think supervised the entire Cantonese dubbing himself and it is vintage Stephen Chow with you know the usual barrage of bad words and, and very crude 
way of delivering lines, and um, and I can't imagine the Mandarin version being funnier than the Cantonese one. Was the um, Mandarin version sync by chance, or was it also post dubbed? The teaser was done, at least the teaser that I saw, which has the police station scene, was done in mostly uh, mostly sync sound. Hmm. So um, interesting, but again, because the Dun Chao character is Stephen Chow. It is essentially what Stephen Chow would have played 20 years ago, right? I mean, now he's too tired. He's never going to act again. I watched an interview today with Vincent Koch that he did for House of Wolves, and they asked him, you know, because he's still friends with Stephen Chow, and he said, you know, Stephen Chow is going back. He says, you know, Stephen Chow is genuinely just, he's genuinely tired of acting because because it's still the same things he's been doing for the last 20 years and he's just tired of it. He doesn't want to act anymore. And unless, you know, Spielberg can get him out of retirement, unless Spielberg hires him, he's not going to act in front of a camera ever again. So you would just have to sort of appreciate that this man is still making movies. And at 90 minutes, it's short and sweet. You know, it's not a big, it's not a difficult set. And it's a very fun film. And just have a good time and appreciate we still have a chance to watch Stephen Chow films on a big screen. What did you think of uh, Lin Yuan? Oh, yeah, Lin Yuan, you talk about the Xu Xi uh, resemblance. I, no, I agree. I think Lin Yuan was good. Or Jelly, I think it is Jelly Lin. What I actually look forward to her pulling a Kitty Zhang in this film, as in she would shed. Because in Kitty Zhang in CJ7 was boring, right? She was the sort of the nice girl, char- nice girl character. I look forward to Jelly or Lin Yuan shedding all that and really, truly sort of getting into it. And sort of exploring new range after the Stephen Chow sort of so we call the Stephen Chow baptism, right? Going through the whole Stephen Chow experience. You know, Mermaid is now on the path of being the biggest film ever in the Chinese box office. Very soon, you know, Jelly is going to be a huge name in in Chinese film industry, and and I hope that she would quickly drop the goody two shoes role and and let's do something interesting with your newfound fame. Uh, so I look forward to her doing that. Listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabour of Snauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We've also had a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at congcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can check us out on Facebook at East S West S. I also urge you to follow Kevin in all that he does and all that he writes where can they find out more about what you're doing, sir? Well, you can read me uh, every month on Discovery Magazine and Silk Road Magazine. I'm the entertainment editor there. Yeah, check out the in-flight entertainment section. You know, I have a column. Um, we have a great column by Maggie Lee. We have great TV reviews from Paul Kay. Um, I also contribute a little bit. Um, yeah, check out the magazine on your, you know, like. Uh, on your Cathay Pacific and Dragon Air flights. Also, you can check out the Discovery iPad app on your iTunes store. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. I also sometimes write on lovehkfilm.com. 
my blog is the Golden Rock. Again, you can find the link on the right side widget uh, on the front page. Uh, my latest blog post last week is how can Netflix save Hong Kong cinema? Uh, and I may have ideas for another blog post in the coming weeks. Um, so yeah, keep keep your eyes peeled. Excellent. Next show uh, should be episode 187. Uh, the plan is to talk about uh, Deadpool. But as you can hear from my voice, <laughs> I don't know if we're going to make it to the Deadpool show. Uh, we've also got, uh, at least planned on the heels of that, the uh, film Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon 2. So depending on what happens with my voice in the next few days, uh, we may be back to talk about Deadpool or our next show might be talking about the Donnie and Michelle show. So, now, Paul, actually, for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and I want to throw this idea out there you while we're recording, I think it would be interesting if I go watch the Cantonese version and you watch the English language version on Netflix and we can sort of come back and compare notes. Yeah, I think that's my plan. I think uh, All right. uh, that, that's how I was hoping to try and catch it. But uh, Yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll have something coming up. All of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Green, West Green podcast saying we're going to need a bigger boat, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. <laughs>